I love that trailer. It makes me feel like Yul Brenner for a moment. Do you guys know who Yul Brenner is? Yeah, look that up when you get home if you don't know. That's fine. So back in 1981, I was 11 years old. Now, don't, please don't do the math. I'm old, okay? Let's just, let's just get that on the table. Back in 1981, I saw this amazing spectacle that the whole world got to partake in, and it was the wedding of Prince Charles and who? Princess Diana. It was amazing. As a matter of fact, it was so amazing that millions and millions of people got to watch it, watched every move he made, every move she made, everything they did was captured by the media, plastered all over the tabloids and the news reels just were going crazy. We loved, loved the idea that these two royals would get together and make a brand new dynasty in 1981. We were dazzled. And in fact, as we were being dazzled, I think what we bought was kind of an interesting bill of goods. We bought into an idea that somehow changed over time. The idea that there was perfection in the marriage of Prince Charles and Princess Diana. That there was something about it that was holy, that was righteous, and that was above all of the rest of us. But as we know the story, and if you don't know the story, you can do your research. As we know the story, as Prince Charles and Princess Diana's marriage progressed, what happened to it? You began to see it decay. You began to see their relationship fall apart. And as we watched the news media, we began to see them progressively part company. So that anytime they were in public together, they looked like they could rather have been at the dentist having teeth removed. You see this at the end of their relationship. Of course, you know, if you know the story, Princess Diana ends up dying in a tragic accident. And Prince Charles ends up marrying someone else. You know, if you watch the TV show on Netflix, there are speculations about that. But there's something very different about the vision that was cast in the beginning when Prince Charles and Princess Diana came down the aisle to the very end of their story, which was tragic, difficult, and painful. Ultimately, if you saw any of the 26 wedding cakes that were prepared for that wedding service that day, you were probably blown away by the majesty, by the vision, by the incredible abundance of every kind of richness that was poured out on the world through that wedding. In fact, people still kind of relish that event, even though the relationship went sour. Even this past month, someone paid 2,500 American dollars for a slice of one of the cakes from Prince Charles and Princess Diana's wedding 40 years ago last month. Now say that with me, $2,500. Ready? $2,500. Now let that sit. What could you get for $2,500? I would suggest that might be a better choice than a piece of cake from a wedding 40 years ago that represented a relationship that did what? That vaporized. And fell apart. The relationship exploded. Or rather probably more imploded. And what it looked like in the end. Is sort of a snapshot of the relationship between God and his people Israel. And this is the connection. I love how the scripture weaves itself together so beautifully. 
If you were to study the book of Ezekiel, and I would bet you 10 bucks right now that you probably haven't read the whole book of Ezekiel yet. If you were to study the whole book and read the whole thing from one end to the other, you would find some really salacious stuff in chapter 16. If you get to chapter 16, you're going to find stuff that borders on pornographic. You're going to find stuff that borders on outright outrageous. And the way that is, is Ezekiel took in the spirit a moment to create a satire. Now, you guys know what a satire is, right? A satire is not a joke. A satire is some graphic representation of something that is painful and difficult for people, right? So Ezekiel in chapter 16 writes a satire about the broken relationship between him and his people Israel, between God and God's people, God's chosen people Israel. And in fact, as we know of Ezekiel, we know that he had a penchant for seeing visions. And we sang the journey song last week, Wheel in the Sky. Remember that? Wasn't that fun? The wheel in the sky that keeps on turning. What that was is that wheel around that base of the vision of God on his throne that had wheels underneath. And do you remember what we talked about? The implications of the wheels underneath the throne of God in Ezekiel's vision. It's that the presence of God had left the temple where Israel had worshipped and had gone where with them? Into exile in Babylon. So the people Israel had rebelled against God, and yet God had done what? God had followed them and had been there with them and had been a refuge with them. God had not turned his back on them. So what we're going to talk about today is another vision that Ezekiel had. It's one in which he imagines himself as a part of this kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Israel being married to God. It's kind of a foreshadowing of the idea that we read about in the scripture of the vision that God has for the church. That the church is the body of Christ and the Christ is the head of the church. And the question becomes, how does Jesus treat his wife, his bride, the body of Christ? This vision is how ultimately God wanted a relationship to be with Israel. But Israel didn't take that relationship to heart. Israel turned its back on that relationship and developed a heart of stone. And in fact, in another place in Ezekiel, God says this through Ezekiel. It says, I intend to take my people Israel and turn their hearts of stone into what? To a heart of flesh. One that it lives, one that breathes, one that feels, and one that ultimately has compassion. Look at what the word of God says through Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to me, to Ezekiel, and said, Son of man, or human being, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices and say, this is what the sovereign Lord. Now, remember, if you were here last week, all capital letters in the word Lord represents what? God's name, Yahweh. Say that with me, one, two, three. Yahweh. All capital letters in the word Lord represent the proper name of God. And so when this scripture is rendered, what it's saying is, this is what the sovereign, the king, Yahweh says. He is both sovereign and he is knowable by his first name. That word Lord, that's a curveball. 
unless you're back in the 15th century in Britain somewhere and you understand the concept of what a Lord is, Lord's going to blow right over your head. So let's qualify it. That word Lord is God's first name. Say it with me, one, two, three. Yahweh. This is what the sovereign Yahweh says to Jerusalem. And then in that 16th chapter, and I'm not going to read it to you. Why? Because some of it is flat out gross. You'd be offended. You'd be like, what am I in church today or where am I? I'm not kidding. If you're over the age of 18, go home and check out Ezekiel chapter 16. But strap in, there's some really gross stuff in there. The reason is, is because Ezekiel wants to get the attention of his people Israel. And what he's doing is he's using a salacious satire. He's using the power of words to get their attention. What he's doing is he's comparing Israel to a wayward wife. A wife that he loved. A wife that he poured everything into. A wife that he gave all of himself to and didn't hold anything back. And instead of loving him back, what does she do? She turns her back and she begins to explore relationships with others. Now, in particular, here's what Israel was doing. Israel was beginning to worship other gods. Now, you guys know, you've been around long enough to know that God doesn't play well with others. God is jealous for you. God wants you. He wants all of you. And he will not share you with other gods, with fake gods, with false gods. He means to have all of you and he means to give all of himself to you. And that's no matter where you are in your life. What he does is he compares Israel with a wife who has chosen others in two specific ways. One way is this. The people Israel began to adopt some of the worship practices of the pagan peoples around them who worshipped sex. And the reason they did that is because they, had, they believed it had a direct effect on how good their crops were going to be. So what they would do is they'd have temple prostitutes do things in the name of their pagan gods in order to try to assure that their crops and their harvest would be plentiful. Israel bought into this lie and bought into the relationship that the surrounding countries began to develop with these false gods. And they literally began to worship sex. The second way is this. Israel had begun to worship a God that required child sacrifice. Now this is where Ezekiel 16 gets gross. There was a God called Molech. Molech was worshipped in one specific way. The requiring that you would hand over an infant as a sacrifice for the people. The people of God who knew that the God who created their infants began to hand over their infants to Molech and sacrifice. So the picture that you see painted in Ezekiel chapter 16 is not only of a wayward wife, but a wife who takes her very own children and sacrifices them in the name of one of her lovers. It's gross. It's despicable. And so Ezekiel calls this out on the table, but he doesn't do it in such short words that Israel might miss it. He does it in such a way that they will remember. And we, in fact, to this day are still commenting about how gross Ezekiel chapter 16 is. But Israel never forgot it. Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. 
I will deal with you as you deserve because you have despised my oath by breaking the covenant, the covenant that I gave you that says I will be your God and you will be my people. And you simply trust in me, follow my rules, my decrees, my commandments. But then God turns around and says this, yet I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. In other words, even though Israel, you have chosen to worship the idol of sex, and I would even submit that our culture worships the same idol to this day. The image of a woman's body is lifted higher than the image of Jesus on the internet any single day of the week. Why? Because people have not learned that the God who made them and made sex made that for a specific reason, in a specific way. And yet we've turned our back on that vision and we've embraced something else, some image that falls short. And in the same way, our kids, what's happening in our kids' lives? They're being led by other people. They're being led by other gods. They're being led by other influences because Christianity is no longer in vogue. Go to any public school in the area and ask what Christianity is. You'll get an interesting answer. The God of the Bible who loves who creates, who sustains, who redeems, who brings his people back, does that not based on what people are doing against him, but based on what? On his heart, on his power, on his glory, and ultimately on his great love. What happens with you and me is this, and it's no less than this. Just like the people Israel, the wayward person of Israel, as we are wayward against our God, he shows us compassion. Why? Why? Why, why, why? Why does God continue to show us compassion? You and me, you know what you've done. I know what I've done. Why does God do that? That doesn't make any sense. It makes no sense. That's why it's God. There is no God but God. God is one. And there's only one of him. And there's only one of him who is capable of doing love like this. Look at what Ephesians says in this reading that Heather just did. Out of respect for Christ, be courteously reverent to one another. Now, the reason we put this scripture in here, I'll just lay it right out for you is because God has a vision for how the relationship between the church and the head of the church, Jesus, is supposed to go. I would ask you this question as you hear these words. Which one of us has held up our end of the bargain? Is it us or is it Jesus? And I would suggest this, it was always meant to be that way. There's a reason for that. Out of respect for Christ, be courteously reverent to one another. Wives, understand and support your husbands in ways that show support for Christ. The husband provides leadership to his wife. Now listen to this. If you're married, listen to this. And if you're unmarried, listen to this. The husband provides leadership to his wife the way Christ does to his church. Not by domineering, but by cherishing. So just as the church submits to Christ as he exercises such leadership. See, it's qualified there, right? As he exercises such leadership, cherishing and not doing what? Domineering. 
You see the qualified relationship there? Wives should likewise submit to their husbands. Husbands, go all out in love for your wives exactly as Christ did for the church. A love marked by giving, not getting. Christ's love makes the church whole. His words evoke her beauty. Let me say that again. His words evoke her beauty. Everything he does and says is designed to bring the best out of her, dressing her in dazzling white silk, radiant with holiness. Not hers, but whose? His. And that is how husbands ought to love their wives. They're really doing themselves a favor since they're already one in marriage. No one abuses his own body, does he? Well, naturally, no. He feeds it and pampers it. That's how Christ treats us, the church, since we are part of his body. And that is why a man leaves father and mother and cherishes his wife. Remember, the cherishing is how that relationship submitting to each other works. What is clearest to me, as Paul writes this, is the way Christ treats the church. And he says right before that, it's a huge mystery. In other translations, the word says this, but I'm talking about the church not husbands and wives. He says, and this provides a good picture of how each husband is to treat his wife, loving himself and loving her, and how each wife is to honor her husband. Listen to that phrase again. This is a huge mystery, and I don't pretend to understand it all, but what is clearest to me is the way Christ treats the church. The way Christ treats the church. Even the church that wanders away, even the church that turns over its bodies, its life, its minds, its soul, its children, its jobs, its future, its incomes, its day-to-days, even the church that does this is treated this way by Christ. Look at another place in the scripture where Paul writes this, 1 Corinthians 13. This is known as the love chapter. Go to any wedding in America. I bet you 50 bucks you're going to hear this passage of scripture. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts always hopes, always perseveres. And then I added one little caveat, the beginning of the next verse, because I want to qualify this reading today. Love never fails. Now there's another passage in scripture that says God is love, 1 John. You guys ever read that before? God is love. So here's a cool trick. Since Jesus is God, let's switch out the word love for the word Jesus. Can you just read this with me? We're going to read the whole thing, ready? Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. He does not envy. He does not boast. He is not proud. He does not dishonor others. He is not self-seeking. He is not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. Do you hear that? Jesus does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. He always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, and read this really loud, right here. Jesus never fails. Now, my friend, you and I, we fail. That's what we do. We embrace failure. In fact, we champion failure in the church. Why is that? Because Jesus is the only one who never fails. 
When we fail, we go back to Christ and we say, Christ, I'm flat on my face here in front of you. I was wayward. I went with this other God. I looked at this other thing that took my heart away from you. I did this other thing that captured my life for a moment away from you. And Jesus doesn't hold up a hand of judgment and say, you can't come back to me. Christ says this, come to me, all you who are burdened heavy laden, I will give you what? Rest. So you heard that in your head, didn't you? You know that scripture. You know that that's true, don't you? So many of us don't know that. And the message is so simple. It's just as it was in Ezekiel 16 with all the gross stuff in it. God gets to the end and the end of the story is this. I will love you forever, not because of you and the way you perform or how you are. I love you because I am love and I'm gonna give all of myself to you and never hold back. Now let that sink into your soul for a minute. Wherever your life is right now, and this is not the, the classic church moment, you know, where we say, whatever you're struggling with right now, I want you to hear this. God is never going to turn his back on you. He's not going to share you with other gods. So he's going to let you have the consequences of following after other gods. God's not a chump. He's not the Stay puff Marshmallow Man. God is sovereign. And at the same time, he is love. And he's coming after you with all his heart. And he's not going to hold anything back. God, thank you for that. Isn't that true? Jesus is the best demonstration of this. He holds nothing back. He puts it all out there. He keeps nothing in reserve. He means all of himself to be all of yours. And all of you to be all of his. What is it like to worship a God like that? It's astounding. It's unbelievable. Would you pray with me? God, you are so good. Can't tell you how good you are. You know. And you've shared that with me. You're not a boastful spirit. In the humility of Jesus, you have made yourself known. I thank you so much for giving yourself to me. And now, God, as I have chased after others, remind me yet again, as we go through the music and as we go through the confession, as we hear those forgiving words again, that you intend to forgive all of me and bring me into your presence. You are such a great God. You're marvelous, you're amazing, you're unmatchable, you're powerful, sovereign, and yet you are love and you're here with me. Pray all this in your holy name. Amen.